And Great. so this is the beginning. Excellent. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Paul Barnes, to the Music Per Currency podcast. Uh, hello, everyone. This is episode seven. And today we are with Dr. Paul Barnes, a phenomenal pianist, chanter, and also professor at UNL. Uh, so welcome, welcome, welcome. Very good to be here. Look forward to talking with you. Same thing. I am so glad that you were able to come. And first, like I've told you, we kind of just talk about general music experience for someone and just how you've been able to leverage your other life experiences to make music your own. So talk about how you even decided to be a musician in the first place. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I owe a lot of it to my dad because when I was a kid, I lead, I led a, a pretty normal childhood. And so I started studying piano at the late age of eight. Oh, man. And then at, I believe it was 11, I said, oh, dad, I hate this. Please <laughs> let me quit. And in his very stubborn, bordering on abusive way, he said, absolutely not. <laughs> and so I had to stick with it. And so that actually gave me options when I was in high school because I had chops and I could play. But I was always interested in other things. I was interested in engineering. I was interested in theology. And so I was either going to go into the ministry, I was going to go into engineering, or I was going to go into music. Mm. And so what ended up happening was I started my first year uh, in college at the Cleveland Institute of Music, and I was hardcore, you know, music performance. Uh, practiced six hours a day, you know, um, and then ended up meeting this beautiful woman that I said, oh, my God, I love this woman, and I'm going to want to make money. <laughs> so I decided, okay, computer science is my ticket. And because I had taken this computer science course in this ancient language that none of you will even know about, Fortran. <laughs> and I was amazed at how precise everything was and that you could do a programming task. And if it doesn't work, it was because you screwed up and you fix it and it works. And that process was so concrete compared to my six hours in the practice room where you're never done. It's never quite good enough. And so I was thinking, okay, this is definitely the route that I should go. Well, thank God I broke up with the woman. And, <laughs> uh, and so then after that one year at Cleveland Institute, I decided that I was going to study theology. And so I transferred to Anderson University mm. and was a combination piano major and Bible major. And it was at that school that I did traveling for the first time. I was in a contemporary Christian group. I was the arranger and the pianist for that, and we toured the entire United States. And that experience, and, and I also took my first philosophy course. And mm. so I had this intellectual awakening as well, and that experience confirmed for me that I really did need to be in music full-time. Mm -hmm. So I transferred yet again, uh, and, and for any of my current students at UNL, don't get any ideas from this. You're staying <laughs> with me, okay? Um, but so then I transferred to Indiana University uh, and finished my undergrad and then did my master's and my doctorate there, and it was a, a remarkable experience. But throughout all of that, I've always combined my love you know, of theology, my love of God, with technology and with piano. Mm -hmm. And that, that has carried me through. And so all of my current projects all kind of relate to the fact that I felt that I had the freedom to explore all of these different areas. Oh, yeah. That's super awesome. I <clears throat> The first thing that really grabbed me that I immediately related to was 
I also wanted to do computer science. But the problem is I also wanted to do 50 other things at the same time. So, <laughs> so I ended up doing pre-med and doing computer science and then doing music and then going, you know what? How about let's just stick with one? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we had a very similar journey. <laughs> but yeah, that's super, super awesome. And so what kind of impacted you to want to say, you know what? Chant is what it is. I know you said that in January you're doing a performance, two That's multiple correct. performances, um, and you had mentioned to me that it is the 30th anniversary of you joining Greek Orthodox. So yes. how did that... How has that influenced your playing specifically? How did you get into that? Sure, sure. Yeah, that's it. Well, uh, and how long is the podcast? Oh, you know, <laughs> as long as it needs to Because I, <laughs> I have a long version and a short version. The short version of why I converted to orthodoxy was the food is way better. It is um, good There, done deal. <laughs> um, the longer version really has to do with an understanding of what it means to be a human being. And within the, within the orthodox tradition, it starts with the very core of human existence, with God existing as a trinity of divine persons that exist in a community of love, mm -hmm. and that everything that emanates from God is an expression of divine love. And so our very existence, everything that is in this room, is an expression of divine love. And mm -hmm. that, to me, as a musician, seemed to be a real, really beautiful way of looking at reality, and that was the lens through which I wanted to process everything that came with me, mm -hmm. uh, everything that came into my senses, I wanted to process through that, uh, through that worldview. Um, and so then, of course, I got into the chant tradition, the Byzantine chant tradition, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the Greek Orthodox world, and that just blew me away um, in terms of, uh, of just the, the, the musical material. Um, and then I got into the idea of, of commissioning composers uh, to write pieces for me that are based on that Byzantine chant tradition so that I get to do the two things that I really love, which is which is chanting and playing the piano at the yeah, same time. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I was introduced to chant pretty much through you, in fact, when you asked me to come to your church. And thank you so much for coming. Oh, I I'm going to need it. you a lot more. Well, I'm glad to show up. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing that I really enjoyed and actually took me aback was because in my church tradition, I we don't have that sort of environment. I remember when I w when I walked into the church for the first time, the first thing that definitely hits you is the smell. You're like, wow, this is amazing! All this incense and everything. Uh, you thought I was gonna say something else, but no, it's 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 the incense. It's amazing. And then you step inside that sanctuary and you just see all of these icons. You see everything in there. And for me, it's just really interesting seeing how that is involved with the music, how important the music is as well to that entirety of the service uh, for that tradition. Yeah. Um, and I think especially coming from where I have been and am still in the, the perspective of seeing just how this long-standing tradition of the music has really held and has grown. It's such beautiful music, I know, because I did my choral degree, yeah. I knew about chant. And I've yeah. looked at Greek Orthodox chant some, but also Roman chant and sure, all of this. Of and so I'm looking and I'm like, you know, there's a completely different experience from the classroom of looking at these chants, talking about organum and all these things, and you're like, okay, cool, yeah, sure, but I'm not singing that anywhere. <laughs> and then to find out that there's a place like down the street that you can sing that yeah. and where it's 
where people are invested in it legitimately. Right. That's something that's really amazing to me. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think uh, I, I'm so glad you had the opportunity to experience that. One of the one of the critical aspects, again, in the way that the Orthodox look at reality, is that everything is connected to our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so when we worship God, we do it with our complete body, our, our all of our senses. You know, with our sense of smell, our sense of taste our sense of sight and our sense of sound. Mm -hmm. And it all goes back to, to really the, the priority that Orthodox place on the incarnation and that that divine event is where God actually becomes a human mm -hmm. and that everything, that, that humanity therefore then becomes sanctified in a very, very special way. And God uses creation and he uses matter to affect our salvation. Mm -hmm. He uses that as a way that we can be united with Christ. And uh, and that to me answered so many deep needs that I had as a Christian, you know, because I was brought up in a in a Protestant tradition where it was much, much more cerebral, you mm -hmm. know, where you have this mental ascent to a list of doctrines and that somehow makes you a Christian. Whereas the Orthodox view is that you are joining an ancient community and, uh, and that the goal of salvation is not to get a sin debt paid, but it's to actually be united with the lover of your soul, with mm -hmm. the creator of the universe. Um, and, and that is a, a long, lifelong process, and the church exists to give you the tools of love that allow you to resist you know, all of the evil that is very, very much a part of reality mm -hmm. as well. And I think that's really cool because also a lot of people look at that same concept through music especially. And I know like in church circles, that's a very strong part anyways, yep. the impact of the music. And so looking at how your playing has really influenced that perspective as well, like how speak to how the piano itself has become a voice to, yeah, to that. Yeah, that, that's a great question, Daniel. Um, for me... Music, uh, my, my mother named me Paul for a very important reason, because she knew that I was going to kind of have this evangelistic apostolic zeal, you know. And uh, so every time I walk out on a stage and I play a program of piano music, I know that that sound that's being launched into the air that goes directly into the ears of my audience, it gives them a taste of transcendent reality. It gives them, and, and it's a taste and it's a feeling, it's not necessarily a cerebral event, but they know and they feel that sense of beauty and they know that they are more than just a random collection of molecules. They mm -hmm. know, they have a taste, they can feel that there is something beyond themselves. And that happens in any kind of an artistic experience. When you walk into a museum and you see a painting that has a view of the world that you could have never imagined by yourself, and it, it's an epiphany. Mm -hmm. It opens up a different way of seeing, and that's what music does. And that's why, one of the reasons why I love playing new music is that nobody's heard this before, you know? And mm -hmm. just a, a couple of weeks ago, I did a world premiere 
of Jack Redford's Variations on the Incarnation, you know, which was based on a Greek Orthodox nativity hymn and had a wonderful chant group from Houston, from the, the Annunciation Cathedral in Houston. And then I got to play this glorious piece that nobody on the planet had ever heard before. Mm-hmm. And, and it was deeply moving. It's a beautiful piece, you know, and I'm, I'm so excited to play this all season long and to do the official Lincoln premiere here on January 31st of mm-hmm. 2024. Um, but that's, that's what I see. And, and, and then when students come to work with me, it's the same exact thing, you know, because we're we're living in a time, a, a very difficult time, where so many young people, high school kids, uh, and early college age kids, are struggling with depression, and they have a very kind of depressed way of looking at reality. Mm-hmm. And so I see music as a very very important tool to really fire their neurons and, and get their brains working in a wonderful way. But yet it also gives them hope you know, that they're involved in something that is so much bigger than themselves that it creates, I think, a very healthy mental environment for them as well. Mm-hmm. So did you think that you were always going to then teach in some way? Uh, because, I mean, like you said, your mom kind of foresaw this evangelical sort of mindset, but then you've also taken it into the academic sort of route of teaching piano right. to individuals. So how... Did, where did that kind of come along in that process yeah, as well? I, um, yeah, I've always loved teaching. I mean, I started teaching when I was, you know, in high school, much to the chagrin of my high school tennis playing partners, because I was on the high school tennis team, and then I got to a point, I have a real serious passion for tennis. We'll mm-hmm. maybe get into that. Oh, yeah. We'll see. Um, and uh, But I got to a point where I had to choose where I was either going to teach piano, you know, after school, <laughs> Or I was going to go to tennis practice. And so I, I made the choice to focus on um, teaching piano. So, But I, I've, I've loved it ever since, ever since I did it because I like the challenge of articulating a musical problem that I'm dealing with and then, and then solving that problem and then you know, articulating that solution to my, to my students. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an incredible... And, and of course, the thing that I love about my current position at the University of Nebraska is that I'm working with, you know, undergraduates and then I'm working with graduate students and really inspiring them to, to really start developing, you know, their careers and thinking about certain things that, that are unique to them that they can then expand upon and produce and flourish and create, you know, career opportunities for themselves. And that's an incredibly... Uh, enjoyable process for me. Mm-hmm. So what kind of challenges have you had? I've, I've kind of joked about this and I take it kind of quasi-seriously, this, this joking, that this podcast sometimes becomes just a music school gripe session <laughs> because, <laughs> because we know that there's some challenges that will go into kind of going into an academic setting and like whether it be that you get slowed down for things or there's things you're like, why am I doing this or whatever, yeah. all of this. Yeah, yeah, but at yeah, the yeah. same time, I've personally found it very valuable to go as a sort of fast track and networking sort of route, really to have opportunities to be able to engage with people and work yeah. together and do all of this sort of stuff if you're, of course, taking control of your education and know what exactly, you're doing. Exactly. So for you in that sort of space, was it always just kind of like, you know what, I'm just going to go through the school and then, you know what, I'm going to actually go and teach at another at a university? How did that kind of impact? And then how does that then relate back to the chant and doing the more 
spiritually based sort of Christian focused kind of approach of your musicianship? Yeah, that's another very, very good question. Uh, you know, it's interesting, and I think it all depends upon your mindset, that if you're kind of entrepreneurially wired, you know, where you're always looking for opportunities, you know, that, that could lead to a dead end or whatever, then you're fine. But there's another type of personality that loves jumping through hoops. <laughs> and the undergraduate experience has so many hoops. And, you know, you know the types. Like you're In high school, you know, you always got good grades and you always, you know, you know, jump, followed all the rules and things like that. Um, for me what the undergraduate experience was about is it is about meeting creative people. Mm. It is all about being in an environment where you are surrounded by creative people and you can see the projects that those creative people do and you learn from them. Mm -hmm. That is the absolute most important reason to go to music school is to be in a community of creatives that can then inspire you to become, you know, creative in ways that they may have never, ever imagined. You mm -hmm. know, and I've got students that have gone in directions that I could have never imagined, and I'm unbelievably uh, proud of them. And so for my, you know, for my undergraduate and my graduate experience, I just met really great people and great musicians that inspired me to do great things. So it has nothing to do with GPA, God forbid, you know, <laughs> or getting great grades, you know, or things like that. But it's, it's basically being around really creative people and desiring that for the rest of your life, mm -hmm. because you have that option. And then when you went, you know, when I got out of school, um, you know, and then I started, you know, the whole job hunting and things like that. Um, and then, you know, had, had kind of introductory jobs and things like that. I still had that same mindset. You know, and then mm -hmm. all of that kind of radically changed in March of 1995 when I met Philip Glass on my job interview mm -hmm. here at the University of Nebraska. Man. You know, and, uh, and, and I saw an opportunity and I, you know, I obviously maximized it and we became really, really close friends. And so, so many of my musical projects that I've been involved in throughout the last 28 years have been a result of me taking the initiative to develop that completely by accident, you know, um, meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. I think it's really neat to see that the focus is not necessarily on the grade side of school, right? And especially looking at, I think the question that everyone always asks is like, what good is this for me to do? Like, what's the practicality of this? I think looking at, like I kind of mentioned, the practicality of chant when you're not able to find a tradition that you're able to engage in is kind of lost, yeah. I think, often. Yeah. And so there's a lot of these opportunities that I think that people will run into when they go to school. And they're like, well, but we're learning about this. Where am I, where am I doing this? What am I supposed to do with this? Yeah. And I think the nice thing is, for instance, for you, you're able to utilize a place, you found a place where you're able to utilize it, where you're able to blend a lot of these experiences right. and ideas. And make something new, which I think is also, like you said, to the creativity part and finding creatives, the ability of the arts to just create something new, which funnily enough, everything has an art aspect to it when you really look into it. Very I mean, true. Very true. even coding, even <laughs> <laughs> to many people's chagrin, right? Yeah. But the nice thing is that we have an opportunity to take so many disparate even seeming ideas and events and throw them together into a mash of something that's just purely beautiful. Yeah. And it's so easy for people to just 
engage in the beauty without having to think about it or try and figure it out. So I think being able to say then, what is the purpose? How do I find that purpose um, in all of this stuff? Or what do I need to do to pivot? I think is a great question. What do you, what do you do for like your students, students, for instance, who are like, well, I'm not sure why I'm taking this class or why I have to learn this thing. I'm real. And especially for the ones that are sure, right. That are like, you know, I know this isn't what I need. Mm-hmm. How how do you deal with that? How how do you yeah. work with that? Well, I and I I do want to uh, you know when I was talking about being in an environment that's inspiring, there is a craft element to music school that mm-hmm. is absolutely critical. Very true. You know because if you suck, you will not have a career. <laughs> period is that. Mm-hmm. And so I I do you know and and it it is a it is a very very clear meritocracy where your self-esteem, you know, is in a great part um, helped by accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And it's it's honest-to-God accomplishment. Oh, yeah. And that is the best self-esteem builder in any context is actual accomplishment that you're responsible for. And so mm-hmm. I really want to guide my students in a direction where I, they can absolutely maximize their playing ability because then that opens up a whole new world because the better you play, the more things you see. Mm-hmm. You have a deeper, you know, deeper perception of musical reality that gives you even more ideas. Mm-hmm. And so the one, you know, because I have very strict rules in my studio, you know, none of my students are ever allowed under any circumstances to play an unimaginative note, mm. period. You know, so everything has got to be, you know, creative and it has to service uh, uh, an interesting and imaginative musical ideal, Mm -hmm. musical idea, you know, as well. And so that whole process, then when they start getting excited about communicating these musical ideals, then they realize, oh, wow, if I have better chops, I'm going to be able to say cooler things. Oh, yeah. And, and then it's this wonderful self-feeding cycle where they, oh my God, they say, and, and this actually, I'm, I'm lucky that I, I have a lot of really talented high school students. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the, the artistic director of the Lead Center Piano Academy, and we just got finished a spectacular year because um, I was able to recruit several students from around the country. So we had a lot of students, particularly from Atlanta. Mm. Uh, and these kids got together, 16, you know, we, ca- we cap it at 16, so it's a very elite group. And they, they got along in such an amazing way. Uh, and again, these are kids coming from completely disparate, you know, environments. Mm-hmm. And they come together and they are united with a common desire to get better. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it was really, really remarkable to see. And it was great to be involved in that teaching process, especially at the high school level. Yeah. You know, because then I could definitely see them preparing, you know, for, for college and things like that. In fact, a lot of our college freshmen at UNL go through that piano academy. They mm-hmm. say, oh, God, I love this. I'm, I'm digging this. And this is what I want to do. You know, and uh, so... That's something that has become very, very important. You know, in that's what I super do. awesome. Yeah, I I love teaching. I think it's really. I was talking about this before with some friends of just the mentorship aspect of teaching that is so critical. Um, I mean, like you said, with never playing an unimaginative note. I just had a lesson yesterday, in fact, and I was telling my student even 
when you're playing a scale, you need to have an idea of what that's what that sounds like, where the context is, what's going on. Yeah. There needs to be meaning behind the music, even if it's not what the composer, whoever said, like there needs to be meaning and try your best to understand how da 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 can sound <laughs> can be beautiful if yeah. they if they do it in cartoons you can do it just sitting here exactly. <laughs> exactly um but yeah it's so awesome to be able to see and tying in again let's go towards tennis now how has yeah. that influenced just your playing there's a technical ability i think i definitely can kind of see mm -hmm. where there's that technical mindset i've been a cheer coach and gymnastics coach for a while yeah. and so I always am equating finger technique for whatever or whenever someone's doing drums or singing or whatever. When I'm teaching them, I'm always thinking, okay, well, how would I teach my cheer tumbler that's trying to learn how to do this flip mm -hmm. or whatever? And there's a kind of very precise technical mindset yeah. that I often see oh, yeah. comes from athletics going into oh, very much so. musical playing. Yeah. Um, I should tell you about my tennis teacher, mm. uh, Fungai Tonguna. Mm. All right, man, he is an awesome dude. And we had this deal where I gave him piano lessons and he gave me tennis lessons. Well, I love you know? that. And I just had, you know, I just competed in the Cornhusker State Games and in the York Tennis Tournament uh, last weekend. And I had a lesson right before. And what Fungi does that's so interesting is he loves using musical analogies, mm. you know. And, and so he wants to make sure that I play tennis in 4-4, you know? <laughs> and I had to tennis and rush in that last beat, and that's why my stupid ball went in the net every single time. And so there are all these interesting musical analogies, you know? And But what's interesting, uh, and, and there's so many similarities, you know, uh, just in terms of, for example, for piano and racket sports, eye-hand coordination, it, there, it's the exact mm. same, you know? So most pianists get racket sports real easily, you know? Um, but the other issue is that relates specifically to performance is the mental focus, mm -hmm. you know, that's required to win a tennis match is the same mental focus that's required to really, you know, play a, a, an exceptional piano recital. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that I have been able to tie along very, very easily. That's been, uh, an important connection. Oh you know? yeah. Very much so. Well, don't mind Zig scrowling. I forgot to close the door. Oh, that's okay. But, She's beautiful. Oh yeah, he's doing he's doing all right. <laughs> he likes to scream. That's what I like to call it a scrowl because excellent. You can hear the sound. But <laughs> anyways, yeah the the combination between the racket sports and piano, I think yeah, a hundred percent. That's really it's really key in kind of that translation. What other types of translations have you kind of made in your piano playing with other aspects of your life that have been critical to new perspectives or just kind of taking you from one place to a completely different or expanded place? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm involved in all kinds of different communities, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I love living in, in Lincoln is that there actually exists so many of these different communities. You know, I have a, uh, a men's group that comes over to my deck, you know, and we do cigars and scotch and mm -hmm. talk about life, you know, mm -hmm. and that has been incredibly inspiring just in terms of different ways of thinking about, you know, various, you know, various issues. Um, and that energizes me to do all of the things, you know, that I do uh, as well. But I'd have to say that it it's my, uh, you know, the, the 
community of Byzantine chanters around the world, you know, has been an incredibly inspiring thing. I was actually mm -hmm. able, I taught at a, uh, at a piano festival in Greece. Uh, I've done it two years in Rome. We're, we're going back next year. And it's run by a former student of mine, Andreas Xenopoulos, oh, yeah. who oh, okay. you may or may not know. Mm -hmm. And he's the artistic director uh, and of the Piano Plus Summer Piano Institute in mm -hmm. Santhi, Greece. Okay. And uh, and they let me. I was able. They knew. They all know that I'm a Greek Orthodox chanter. So I actually was able to chant at the cathedral in Xanthi. I was so <laughs> nervous, you know, because at the church here, obviously, the majority of everything we do is in English because that's what everybody speaks. Mm -hmm. But we do. You know, we can do Greek. And so I had to really, really practice the Greek and all of those kinds of things. And uh, and so the chanter there was a wonderful Georgios. He was so generous. He said, Paul, you can chant anything that you want. And so there's this crown jewel of a hymn in the matin service. You know, it's the Gloria, the glory mm -hmm. to the praises. And he said, Paul, you get to chant that. You know, <laughs> and, and one of my colleagues was there. She videoed, you know, it's on my YouTube channel now. And they mm -hmm. actually live streamed the thing. Um, and so, but but just being in that environment, and this church was so spectacularly beautiful, um, and to be in that environment with with all of these chanters, and to be able to chant these beautiful hymns, mm -hmm. you know, and it was a it was a meditation on our salvation in Christ, seen from different biblical characters, and and it was just beautiful, um, and that kind of an experience just totally changes me and it yeah. energizes me to just do everything that I'm involved in better. Oh yeah, that's super awesome. I, I've told you this already, yeah. but I'm going to keep saying it because I'm. it's going to happen. I got to get to Greece. So, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> however we're making that happen, it's going to happen. Yeah, you but should. Well, I and would if love you do, to. Uh, because the thing that I did this year that I'd never done before, well, I'd done it once before, but, but about 30 years ago, is that after the festival was over, mm -hmm. um, I made sure that we changed the date of the Piano Academy so I could spend an extra week in Greece. And mm. so I went to Mount Athos, mm. which is, uh, it's the third of the Halkidiki peninsulas, you know, in northern Greece. Um, and there's 20 Orthodox monasteries there. And I stayed at the Vadopedi Monastery, which it's renowned for, they even have a Spotify channel. So, mm -hmm. channel. so if you go on Spotify and type in Fathers of Vadopedi, it's gonna, they'll pop up. That's and I got cool. to hear this chanting for three days. Um, and being in that environment was just a complete recharge mm. in every aspect. You know, it's so interesting because awesome. I, uh, I, our men's group came over there on Tuesday night, and they were very interested in hearing about this. And a lot of it, a lot of discussion had to deal with food um, because the monastics are, are more or less vegan. I was there on my feast day, you know, the feast day of St. Peter and Paul, which I got to celebrate twice because on the, on the new calendar, it's June 29th, but it's, it's July 12th on the old calendar, mm -hmm. which is when I was there. <laughs> so I got to party twice. And, uh, and so they, they pull out all the stops on the feast day and you get to have fish. And, and everything that I ate there, it was so clear that these monks, every single thing they do, they do with this spirit of love. And so the food was so delicious. It was so thoughtful. And it was such an expression of 
of genuine hospitality. Mm-hmm. You know, in this particular monastery, Vadopadi, the 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 guest house, and they it's huge, and they house guests from all over the country, mm-hmm. all over the world. You know that are there, and so I met men from you know from Cyprus and from France and from Australia and from uh, from England, mm-hmm. you know, and several from the U.S. that were there, um, and and that was one of those experiences that just simply changes your priorities, you know, and mm-hmm. it basically reminds you, and this is another theme that, again, that I try to communicate to all of my students, is that the big issue of being a human being is that you forget everything every day <laughs> and that you must be reminded of everything every day mm-hmm. uh, in terms of who you are. And, and so that's one of the reasons why the regularity of the prayer life in the Orthodox tradition is so critical mm. because at every single divine liturgy, you are reminded of why you're here, why are you here, and what is your whole purpose. Mm-hmm. You know? And when you go up and receive you know, Holy Communion, you realize that that union that is created with your creator is the whole reason you know, why you're here. And that's giving you grace to continue your journey. And that is felt in such a powerful way when you visit a monastery. That's super awesome. And so I was able to hear the best chant on the planet and was able to eat and and drink. And and by the way, this monastery is famous for their wine, unbelievable wine that we had at every meal, and olive oil, which I brought a bunch of bottles back, (laughs) and, and honey. You know, and um, so all of which is just kind of an extension of divine love, and you you feel it in such a visceral, powerful way when you're actually there. So I will be going back next year oh, for oh, sure. Grand. And you can come with me. I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I think since we're coming to close to wrapping up, we're not there just yet. And so I I think let's talk about January. Like, yeah. how did that kind of come together? We've talked about how. You know, you have from the beginning just about like you've been integrating chant with your playing. And so this seems almost like a sort of culmination to an extent of a lot of things um, and a lot of commissions as well. So how how did this come together? Yeah, it's interesting. I just realized that this January 31st in 2024 will be the 30th anniversary of my entry into the Orthodox Church. Uh, and, and, of course, when that happened 30 years ago, I had no idea that also happened to be Philip Glass's birthday. Uh, <laughs> I found that out later when he became a very important force in my life. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, so this particular January is going to be this kind of a culmination. It'll be a retrospective. It'll be a birthday party for Philip Glass. But yet at the same time, it will also be, you know, a, a celebration of this, these new lenses that I've been given to look at reality, you know, through through the Orthodox Church's mindset, phronema, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and Jack Redford, you know, who is this unbelievable composer, and he's had a very successful Hollywood career as well. He's written a ton for film, and he wor- he's the orchestrator, you know, for Jim Horner and all of these, you know, really really important uh, uh, Hollywood composers. Uh, he wrote this beautiful piece that was commissioned by the St. Constantine School in mm. Houston. And uh, and it was actually, you know, dedicated to a philosophy professor of John Mark Reynolds called Al Geyer. And he wanted to, wanted to relate Plato and orthodoxy and all these things. And Jack was up for the task. And so that will be the Lincoln premiere 
of that piece as well. And so oh, I'll awesome. be creating a chant group that you're singing in, whether you know it well, or not, course. you are well, totally know singing it in it. <laughs> and uh, so we'll be doing chants based on, you know, the feast of uh, the Annunciation, because we are also going to do the Philip Glass Quintet again. Oh, nice. You know, it hasn't been done since the world premiere, mm-hmm. you know, on in April of 2018. So we'll have a, a faculty group uh, and hoping to include our new director. Oh, uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. So uh, we hope that he'll be involved in that as well. Um, and so it'll be a celebration, you know, of, of, of Philip Glass's uh, birthday. And I think by that time, it'll be his 88th birthday. Mm. And, um, uh, and then the, the role of chant, you know, in my professional life as well. So we'll be doing a lot of music, but I'm very excited. And Jack will be there. I'm ex- so excited about having him meet all of my students and mm. having him meet the incredibly vibrant musical community, mm-hmm. you know, that's here in oh, yeah. Lincoln. Uh, so it will be it will be very exciting. That's really really awesome. How do you take all of this experience and kind of impart it to students or to really whoever to be unique in their own way and creative with how they approach, especially as students, careers in music? What? How do you kind of go about that? What are some things that you kind of look at and think about? Sure. Well, one of the things that I do, and this is true both in terms of my studio teaching and in my piano literature course that I teach on Wednesday evenings, anybody's invited, um, is that I want to introduce my students to to all of the really exciting people that I've met that have changed my life. Mm. Uh, So, for example, a recent graduate, Madeline Rogers, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, is doing wonderful things at Berea College in Kentucky. Um, and I introduced her to Victoria Bond, mm-hmm. and she ended up writing her doctoral document on Victoria Bond. I still remember, this is the funniest thing, is that she was doing her document defense, mm-hmm. okay, uh, and we did it. This was, you know, stupid COVID, so we're doing it by Zoom, and uh, I happened to be in New York mm-hmm. staying at Victoria's place, <laughs> and so here I am, you know, being chair of her doctoral committee, talking about you know, her document on Victoria Bond in Victoria Bond's house while she's sitting there, you know. So it was a very, very unique thing. But Madeline is one of those students that saw the work that I did, you know, and and loved it. And so developed her own relationships and her own projects. She just got done Mm -hmm. recording a CD uh, of a a two-piano version of the piano concerto that I had recorded, you know, 20, 20 years ago when I first met Victoria, mm-hmm. you know, and a former student of mine, Christian Johnson, who's oh, also yes. a wonderful DMA student. He created a beautiful two piano version of the quintet or of the concerto. And Victoria and my student Florencia Zuluaga, you know, from Argentina, um, they did, did a recording funded by Victoria. And mm-hmm. so she's got her own, you know, uh, professional uh, professional direction, professional path that was clearly inspired by the stuff that I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so the the piano literature seminar, which I'm teaching this semester, I make sure that all of my current projects, you know, like Ron Warren, wonderful mm-hmm. Native American composer that, that came to UNL a couple of years ago and wrote this beautiful piece for me, um, that has a real positive effect on my students. You know, mm-hmm. and Jack, I'll be, I'll be uh, zooming in Jack, uh, you know, Redford, uh, and of course, he'll be here in person in January, so it'll be way better. <laughs> but I'll be zooming him in as part so that that people, they realize how exciting, 
the new music world is and to be working mm-hmm. with living composers, yeah. you know, in the creation, because it's always a collaboration, even with Philip Glass, mm-hmm. you know, I would, you know, would, would talk through ideas and he was always interested in my pianistic approach to his ideas and would let me change things and things like that. And that happens all, you know, with all of the composers that I work with. And it's an incredibly fulfilling process. And that's what I want my students to be able to do. Oh yeah. And commissioning is so, so key and cool. I just, yeah. It's it's a great opportunity to really look at, like I said, the current w- relevance of what it is that we do as musicians. Yeah. I think sometimes it's lost when people are just playing older works that mm. may be beautiful and great and very yeah. well are. Yeah. But there's still people that are writing music today. Oh, right. right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and then one of the things that, that's really important that I also work on my students, you know, ability to, and that is grant writing, mm-hmm. um, which I know I never took a class in grant writing at IU, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, like I have one of my, uh, master's students who just graduated, Savannah Royston mm-hmm. is a spectacular grant writer, you know, so she got a job at the Francis Clark Center mm. writing grants. She works with Victoria Bond, you know, as her grant writer, that's super you awesome. know, and that's just opened up a whole world of opportunities, you know, that she can explore. I still remember my first major Grant writing issue, you know, was really with the Philip Glass Piano Concerto Number no. Two, the Lewis and Clark, and I still remember that I was in front of the Nebraska Lewis and Clark Bicentennial Commission, you know, which was the chair was my dear friend, you know, of blessed memory, Ron Hull, and uh, and I had the task of convincing this committee that it would be a much better use of their $25,000 to commission Philip Glass rather than to invest it in like a bicentennial gun collection. And <laughs> so, you know, but I had to make that case, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so, so much of everything that we do is, is cultivating the ability of telling great stories. Mm-hmm. That's what makes you a great performer. That's what makes you a great fundraiser. And so I should mention that one of the pieces that I'm playing on my January 31st recital and playing on all my recitals is my solo transcription of The Land, which is the third movement of the Lewis and Clark Piano Concerto. And that's what Ron Hull wanted me to play at his funeral. Hmm. You know, And without Ron, that piece probably wouldn't exist because he exerted such wonderful you know, um, um, control and persuasive power, you know, to make sure that the committee, you know, gave me, gave me the money. So I really owe the piece to him. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I transcribed the third movement for solo piano, um, and I'm dedicating all of those performances to the memory of my dear friend, Ron Hall. That's awesome. I think something you said is really, really key. And especially talking about the grant writing aspect is one of the most beautiful things of music is the ability to tell great stories. Yeah. And whenever you're creating the music, whenever you're playing the music, whenever you're music adjacent, uh, whatever the case may be, I think that's one of the most important things for when people talk about advocacy as well. Yeah. It's the storytelling. And I think even more so getting other people to understand why that's even important why telling stories is important, why that connection is important. I think you've talked about a lot of different aspects of connection that are key. The storytelling, I think, culminates all of them together. Yeah. And to be able to really say to someone that is not thinking that way, you really do value this is a very important aspect. And I think for grant writing especially, of course, yeah. that's 
huge. Right. Yeah. So I think that's, it's just such a beautiful thing to think of. And I think especially as often it's difficult for people to articulate why this is important and take it all the way to the beginning of like, why should a kid be doing lessons, right? <laughs> it's because you want them to be able to tell stories. Yeah. You want them to be able to relate with other people in a way that isn't necessarily immediately apparent or right. clear. Right. Well, and the, the the storytelling is intimately connected to teaching mm -hmm. because what makes you a good storyteller is having that ability to see your audience and and then immediately you know, know what's going on in them and what and what will relate to them. And that's exactly the same thing with teaching. You know, you've got a unique, unrepeatable, beautiful human being in front of you mm -hmm. that that has his or her own way of looking at reality. And you can impact that, you know, in a in an incredibly positive way, but you have to be able to understand their world. Mm -hmm. And in order to tell a good story, you've got to be able to relate to the audience that you happen to be with. Yeah. You know, and what that does is it, is it takes a whole different way of looking at reality. There are a lot of very, you know, arrogant people that have their own way of looking at the world and they're just going to impose it, you know, on, on you without any concern about where you're at or who you are mm -hmm. or where you are on your journey. And so I think a good teacher and a good storyteller, they've got that ability to see the other person in a very, very authentic and unique way. And then therefore they can really communicate in, in a way that's got a lot more depth than the person that's unwilling to do that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I think... We're just about done. Yeah. But one last thing sure. is what in what would you say is one thing, and I know this is gonna be a difficult one, <laughs> one thing <laughs> that you learned on your journey to be being where you are here today that you think was fundamental to putting you to where you are and would have been great to know <laughs> sooner. <laughs> Probably the one thing would be, uh, and I, I guess I'll just have to quote Dostoevsky, you know, it's that beauty will save the world. Mm. And that idea that it's through the experience and the participation in beauty just changes everything. And it, it can give you so much more insight into what your own personal journey is as a human being, um, but yet it also gives you insight into the whole journey of humanity as a community, you know, um, and that's the one thing that continues to keep me practicing. I still practice, yes, mm -hmm. and, uh, and keeps me performing, and it keeps me teaching, and it keeps me praying, and it keeps me chanting, mm. is that fundamental idea you know, that that we are, in fact, created, you know, by a God that by his essence is beautiful. Mm. And and that beauty always attracts creatures. And mm -hmm. that's that's probably the most important thing I've learned. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Bones. My this pleasure. has been awesome. My Gonna pleasure. have to have you on again I'd after we to. go to Greece. So Yes. <laughs> we'll talk about that monastery trip. Amen. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All righty.